what pops up a beer or a cold libation Let me tell you how I wrote this little theme I went and took a call from brother Jason And he tells me that he has a little dream He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast And I ask him what you got He said I'll start off with some talking And some moody clips of popcorn fighting Fantasy explorations and some groundness exploitation Kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxing Full month horror movie marathon Sometimes I'll let the dogs come on Contest and of course you know it's all about games I said slow down let's just start with the name It's the Nerds RPG Variety Podcast With the other Jason Welcome back to Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I'm your host Jason. Today's show is a little bit long, but I have a lot of good content for you. We're going to start with an unboxing, and then we're going to move on to a recap of a recent Old School Central's Barrow Maze game I played in. And then we have a whole slew of listener calls. So let's get to it. Just want to plug the contest one more time. And you ha- If you haven't been listening to my podcast, we have a contest going on right now. Until St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, 2021, you can send me an audio message. You can either send it by, audi- by Anchor. You can send an email to nerdsrpgvarietycast at gmail.com. You could attach that audio an audio file that you record on your phone or your computer to that email. You could send it to me on Discord, I guess. There, there are numerous ways to get it to me. If, if you're technologically, um, if you can't send audio message, if you want to send an email to nerdsrpgvarietycast at gmail.com, I'll be happy to read your entry. So, you know, I, I don't want to exclude anybody. So I, if, you, if you send me, you know, in text, I'll, I'll read it and put your name in. The winner of this contest is going to get a $20 drive through RPG gift certificate. So what's this message have to say? Well, what I'm looking for are what your definitions for rules-heavy, rules-light, and crunchy as far as RPGs go. And try not to use the other words in the definition. So don't just say rules-light is a game that isn't rules-heavy. You know, try to give me a, you know, a full definition for each term. But yeah, so send those in. I'd be happy to take all those submissions. And like I said, I'll, I'll throw them all in the hat, pick a name, and that person's going to get a $20 gift. Okay. Unboxing time. So this is another product. I actually know what's in here. It's a envelope from Exalted Funeral Press. And we're going to open it up and see what's in here. So let's do that. Hopefully you can hear that. It is, oh look, it's a game. Like I said, I, I kind of knew it was in this one. But I wanted to open it up. Recently over on Old Man Grognard, he's been talking a lot about Western games. And this happens to be a Western game. It was a Zine Quest project from last year that I didn't back. It's called In the Light of the Setting Sun by Savad Sanctum. S-I-V-A-D? Whatever. Written by John Davis, based on rules by Nate Treme. There you go, Spencer. I know that excites you. Between the years of 1850 and 1900, many cowpoke roamed the wild, or the western frontier. Anyway, you can get this on PDF as well, if somebody doesn't want to pay shipping, um, if you're overseas or whatever. But it is a western game that looked interesting. And it popped up finally on Exalted Funeral, so I figured I'd pick it up. And 
comes a little business card from John Davis, which is kind of cool. It's got a little imp on the back. Non-corporate homemade games from the depths of Tennessee. And, you know, I paid $10 for this, which is fine. Um, you know, it's got a little map of the county in the back. And, you know, it's, um, let's see a page count. It's like 36 pages, so it's cool. It's got a bunch of random charts in it. It is, like say, based on Nate Tremay's famous rules, which he doesn't mention it here, so I won't mention it either. Ha, 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 ha. But you know the rules I'm talking about. And it's just a basic Western, um, but it, you know, uses things like the dice chain and and has dual mechanics, and it's kind of interesting. This is to do spaghetti Westerns. It's not to do, like, magical, you know, it's not Deadlands kind of game. But it lets you use your entire set of dice, and it's kind of cool. So I haven't played it or run it. I would like to, so maybe, maybe I will at some point. Maybe I can get Spencer in on it since it's this set of rules. If you know the set of rules I'm talking about, feel free to call in. And I will let you know if you're right. But that's about it for the unboxing today. So let's get on to the rest of the show. Games that I played. I'm only going to talk about one game today because I've got a ton of calls, which is good. But I'm going to talk about an OSE game I played. So Old School Essentials. And we were playing in the Barrow Maze by Greg Gillespie. This was run by Menion of the Confessions of the Wee Timorous Bushy podcast. Of course, I'll ha include links and all that sort of thing in the show notes. Um, and yeah, it was an interesting game. So every other Wednesday, and now Menion, also known as Rob, is over in Japan. So he kind of runs on in his evenings, which is my mornings. Because I'm on the East Coast of the U.S. So it's 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. game for me. And then there are players from all over the world in this game. But he, it, it was interesting because we had nine players, one DM, and eight players in the game. And so it was a big group. And it's a and he only, there are only two-hour sessions because he's trying to be mindful of everybody's time. So there was a little bit of, you know, people talking over each other. But for the most part, it was fairly controlled. You know, it was it worked out fairly well, and you know Baramaze is most of you guys are familiar with that. If you're not, it's a kind of a mega dungeon kind of thing that that Greg came up with, and basically it's it, you know it's a ton of a barrel mounds of burial mounds, and then there, there's more to it. But I, I won't go into it because if you haven't played it, I don't want to ruin anything. And if it, but there's a town that's kind of like a hub of operations, and you go out and dig up these. You can go out and dig up these barrows and, and you know, there's all kinds of creatures in them and things in them. And there's other, like, faction play and other things you can do in the, in the game, in the, that world, too. But this one's more like digging up the barrows and seeing what's going on at the moment. All the players are pretty low level at this point, I think. I don't know if anybody's even above first level, to be honest. But I created a first level fighter because I was, normally my schedule doesn't let me play in this game. So I rolled up a character. In OSE, I, you know, I just rolled 3d6 down the line, and I rolled a pretty typical character for me, but Rob thought it was a pretty horrible character. So maybe I, maybe I just don't roll well. I had a strength of 11, intelligence of 3, a wisdom of 11, a dex of 9, a 
a constitution of 7 and a charisma of 10. So a total of minus 4 if you add his minuses and pluses because he doesn't have any pluses. Um, so looking at that, I decided, well, he's going to be a fighter. I called him Najos, the fighter, N-A-J-O-S. And I rolled for hit points. I rolled a 3 for hit points on a D8, which would have been 2 hit points with a con modifier. Rob does a thing, or minion. I, I might intersperse Rob and minion, same person. The, the DM does a thing in this game where you get half your hit die if you roll under that. So he started with four hit points, but again, with a constitution modifier, drops to three. So I have a fighter with three hit points, no bonuses, and a minus three to wisdom. So I decide to make him, if you've ever seen The Simpsons, they have a hillbilly character named Cletus in that that cartoon, and so I based him off Cletus. He had a bowl haircut, kind of a buck tooth sticking out, talks real slow like this. He figured he he's not very smart, so he's going to just have a two-handed weapon, so I gave him a, which in OSC, I just gave him a pole arm, but I called it a maul, and um, some people call it a maul, I call it a hammer. Um, anyway, we went, so, and then I was able to buy him chain mail. And that was about, because I only rolled, I think, 60 gold for his gold. So, you know, I rolled really bad for his gold, too. But anyway, I hooked up with a group, which was great. Great group of guys. They all seem to be, you, you, you know, pretty pretty good group. I'm sorry I, I can't play with them more often because I really enjoyed the banner back and forth. And everybody seemed very welcoming and nice. But we, we went to the Barrow, and, and there's a Barrow they had investigated previously where a magic user had, had died in there. It fell into a a spike pit actually and um so we went back to that barrow and we enter we go down the stairs and enter in there and there's something moving in the corner something big moving in the corner and so I throw a couple torches out to try to see what it is better and ends up being a giant scorpion and so they shoot some arrows at it us melee types the fighter types get up front and knelt down they fired arrows at it and end up having like a now, that you, this uses ascending armor class, so the higher the armor class, the better, which is confusing to old men like me. But So I had a 17 AC. I, I think the AC was 17, or 16 or 17. I think it was 17. Anyway, so, but they got, I think one of their initial arrows did hit it. Um, and then it came in, and, and we got to roll an attack before it attacked us. So I rolled my attack, and I rolled a 3 on a d20, which is a definite miss. And... With roll 20, because we're, I, I didn't mention, but we're using roll 20 for a virtual tabletop and Google Meet for audio and visual. And Google Meet worked really well. It, um, you know, was stable and it seemed to work well. So I, I don't know, this might be the first time I really used Google Meet in a game and give it two thumbs up. Although I didn't see a way to change my name, the, the name underneath my picture in Google Meet. Maybe you can do that when you sign in. So maybe one thumbs down to Google, maybe one negative Google Meet. It wasn't easy to adjust my name in the program once we were, I was logged on the call. But all in all, Google Meet worked really well. Anyhow, I rolled a three, but roll 20 rolls the damage, same time it rolls the hit. And a polearm does a D10 damage, but it rolled one on damage. So the one roll Cletus made, well, I'm sorry, Najos made in the game was a three to hit and one damage. So rolled really horribly, and then so he missed. But the one of the one of the players was playing an elf, and he hit. I think he rolled natural twenty, maybe because it was the, it was a twenty-one total. But he hit and did some damage to the 
scorpion, so they, they saw, you know, if it bleeds, we can kill it, right? And some of the missile weapons it hit. And so now it was the scorpion's turn to attack. And one of the claw attacks, actually the first attack the scorpion did was against Najos, and it was a claw attack, and it was for seven points of damage. Of course, Najos only has three hit points. So, and, and this was probably unfair to, to our DM, but I said, oh, he, he cut me clean in half right at the center. And so I kind of took that narrative control away from the DM, and that made, that's my bad. I, I don't know what their standard is. I don't know if normally the DM narrates the death or the player gets to narrate their death in their game with their group. But I kind of stole that from, from him, so I kind of feel a little bad about that. But I, I, I kind of declared he got chopped in half. And um, so, which came up later because as they were doing a retreat, they wanted to pull the body with them. So they grabbed the legs. And of course, you get just get the lower half of the body when you grab the legs, right? But he only had, I think, two gold pieces on him anyway. So they weren't losing much by leaving the body behind. But they ended up luring the scorpion out of the, out of, out of the barrow. And what the DM did, because he felt bad that I died so early, which didn't bother me because it's just a game. Uh, you know, character death's part of the game. But what he decided to do was let me roll attacks for the monster. So we we did that, and because I roll real, I roll horribly. I roll really low all the time. I, you know, had some misses, which was good. And and one of the players is Barry over at the Shadow of the Jam podcast, and he's playing a dwarf named Villy in this. And so he, but they they lured this thing out of the burrow and. And he had, they had set up some traps, like bear traps, beforehand. And they kind of maneuvered it so it would come into the bear traps. But, and they maneuvered over one of the bear traps. But they all got some more blows in. And I think Barry land, actually landed the killing blow on it. But due to my low rolls, my, you know, I, the scorpion didn't hit him. Didn't hit Barry, which is good. Because, you know, it didn't kill him. It had like two or three attacks on him at the, at the very last round before it died. And because of my low rolls it missed them all which is pretty cool and but they killed it but then they just and oh the last thing Cletus did or Cletus (laughs) last thing Najos did he got to do it uh, some have an inspiring death and of course you know when when he saw it you know he he told him those things is good eating and um but he he had inspired Billy, so Barry actually had a plus one on his attack roll, which is what let him hit, because I think he rolled a 16, so with that plus one, he actually hit it. But um, to do that inspiration from Cletus' death. But they decided they were going to take the scorpion back to town and and sell it for, you know, both for parts and for the poison and potentially for the meat. So they did that, and they got points for that. But before they went back to town with a scorpion, they decided to go back in and finish clearing out the burrow. And this is kind of where it got dicey. They they found there was a door, a closed door, where they heard some scuttling behind there that sounded like another scorpion. So they spiked that shut. So that was good on them. And they did some other exploring. But in the other exploring where they found like a, a, a ring and some other stuff, they found a secret door. Said, oh, let's go check out the secret room. So they go in the secret room and there's statues in there. And one of the statues is holding a sword. Well... At that point, what happens, right? The thief goes up, checks for traps, doesn't find traps. I'll come back to that. And, of course, he's going to take the sword, right? 
Well, as soon as he took the sword, the other statues came to life and attacked the party. Three statues came to life and attacked the party. Well, and they were shooting fire out of their hands. And <laughs> the, you, you know, Minion said, oh, Jason, why don't you roll damage? So, un, or, or not damage, but roll the attacks. Well, the w one of the attacks hit the thief and it incinerated him. He only had two hit points and, it, and the attacks were 2d6 each attack. So he, he was a goner from the start. Um, and then the other statues, Minion decided to roll for one of the statues and let me roll for the other one. And that was a mistake because the roll I did were was like a three and a four. So and I and 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 I had my statue was targeting Barry again, Barry's dwarf. So Barry's dwarf didn't get hit because of course I roll like crap. But the minions attack against a, a gnome, he rolled two hits and then rolled eighteen. So he did a total of eighteen damage to this first level gnome, just annihilating him. If he had let me roll all the monster attacks, that wouldn't have happened. But it's okay. Anyhow, they all the players took the character deaths and all in Strata. It wasn't an issue at all. They're they're totally on board with the idea here, so it's, it was all good. But but so they ran out of the room, and and that was the end of the session. Um, but yeah, so so it was a pretty fun session. Let me see if I have anything else in the notes here. Oh, I I said I was going to come back to. Let me see if there's anything else. Okay, so the only other note I have here, I said I was going to come back to this. The thief checked for traps before he took that sword off the statue. So the thief had rolled, I think, well, Minion, the DM rolled to see if he found traps. He rolled a six, which he said was like a really good roll. So I guess maybe it's a D6 and on a six you find traps. I'd, I'd have to look at the OSC rules. But regardless... He said it was a good roll. He would have found traps because it's a magical trap. He ruled he didn't get, he didn't find it. And then there we had a discussion. Well, was this a trap? Well, when you pulled the sword out, a bad thing happened, and the sword's a treasure. So, if you look at OSC, like I, there's an SRD online. I just hopped on there because I'm traveling right now, so I don't have the rule books with me. But you know, it basically says a thief can find treasure traps. Well, the sword's a treasure and it's a trap. Something, a bad thing activates when you pull the sword up. So I said, yeah, I would let him find it. And there was some discussion about it. And and he, they decide in the future that the thief would be able to detect magic traps, um, even though he didn't this time. But I, I throw that out to you, dear listener. When you're running these games, do you let thieves find magical traps? That's a question. I don't know. I don't have a problem with thieves finding magical traps. But, you know, I'm an advocate of the players. But at the same time, it depends how, what your system is, how tight your system is. If your system has specific rules and differing rules for magic traps and non-magic traps, then that would, might matter. I don't know if OSC goes that detailed. If your system doesn't get in that much depth, then I think thieves should definitely be able to find magic traps. They might not be able to disarm them, or it might be harder for them to disarm them. I think that's fair. So, I'm very interested to hear everybody call in and let us know, do they think thieves should be able to find magic traps? And I just can, and I'm happy to say I confirm that I should always play the black hack, because if I was playing the black hack, my rolls would have been great. And I should say Minion, over at Confessions Week, Tim Rispucci, is a great GM. He did a good job, you know, handling this these eight PCs and eight players trying to, you know, and controlling the table and 
knowing what's going on. He did a good job with all that, and he has a great group there. Like I say, everybody's very inviting and very nice, and they were all taking the game totally in, in the right spirit, having fun. So I, I'm just sorry that I, I'm not going to be able to play with him very much because it conflicts with my work schedule. But that is my play report for this podcast. So now we're going to go on to many, many listener calls. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Well, maybe it's your auntie or a joke by your spouse, but the operator's screaming is coming from inside the house. Sorry, I'm driving, so I don't have the video I'm about to talk about, but I'll try to explain it. I was listening to a video about, uh, it was like a logic problem slash fallacy video, and they were talking about the idea that this was supposed to be uh, dealing mostly with the law, but it could be anything, that you shouldn't tear something down or change it until you understand why it wasn't originally set up that way. You know, the idea being that you could look and be like, well, that law that uh, you can't have a fence over five feet tall doesn't make any sense, so let's just get rid of it. But before you do that, you should say, well, why did they originally make that law? Because there was a reason. Whether the reason was bad or stupid or outdated or whatever is different than the fact that it just doesn't make sense. Kind of what you're saying in episode 176. The designers knew what they were doing. They put those rules in there for a reason. Whether or not they still apply or still should be used, that's, that's a whole other thing. But it's not like they would just randomly put it there. That was Daniel, Bandit's Keep. Really appreciate his thoughts. He's a smart guy. Really stand up and listen when he talks about, especially about, you know, BX, OSE kind of stuff, when he talks about OD&D. The reason I played that top of show is I wanted a positive message at the top of the show. He actually sent me a a series of messages. You'll hear the rest later in the show. But I wanted that positive one up top because the next message is me screwing up. So we, we had to get the good out there first. But Daniel's talking about my defense of, of Gary and, and whoever else, but the original designers for D&D putting in, you know, class level limits for demi-humans and having class restrictions for demi-humans and things like that. And, and he's right, you know, you don't have to use these things in your games, and you're, it's not wrong to, if you change these rules. But that said, to just dismiss level limits as stupid you know, is, is kind of ignorant because th- there were well-reasoned, you know, arguments at why they put them in the rules. They, they had reasons they put them in the rules. They weren't just, they got drunk one night and said, I hate dwarves, I'm going to limit how far they can advance. That, you know, that's not what it was. And, and again, when you go back to the earliest writings, we see where demi-humans were really a consolation prize when you, when you rolled bad because D&D was supposed to be human-centric. But again, you're not wrong to throw level limits out and you know, class level limits out in your campaign, but don't say that the designers were wrong to include them because there were well-reasoned arguments why they included them. This next set of calls needs a little bit of unpacking for people that haven't listened to every episode of my show. So, not too long ago, Colin Green of the Spike Pit RPG podcast sent me a message that I played on the show where he stated his idea that page count was not a good indicator of rules complexity. And and I agreed with him. You know, in the past, I've talked about how 5e is 996 pages or whatever. 
you know, compared to, you know, 64, 128, I guess, for BX. But, you know, the question is, does that page count, the difference really mean the 5e is more complicated? You know, and we, we talked a little bit about that, but that whole thing launched this current contest that I mentioned at the top of the show. Well, Taylor, who has the excellent Cleric Sword Ringmails blog, called in his comment on page count. And he did it at the, he, he sent me a series of messages and the page count message was the last of that series of messages. So I cut that message out, just the page count part, and played it. And then Colin called in response to that. Unfortunately, those messages from Colin in response to Taylor, he sent me on Discord, and I thought I had downloaded both. He sent two messages, and I thought I downloaded both, but apparently I only downloaded one. So last, so when I played a response to Taylor, it was only one message <laughs> instead of the full message that Colin sent. And today I have Taylor's responses to that first part of Colin's message. So it's, it's kind of convoluted. But you're going to hear Taylor's initial response to Colin, Colin's calls, including one that you've never heard before, in response to that message, and then Taylor's response which unfortunately is just the first part of Colin's call because he hadn't heard the second part yet. Confused yet? Awesome. So sit back, listen to these wonderful messages. And by the way, Colin uses Dungeon Crawl Class as an example, which I used last episode. I actually hadn't heard his message at the time, so great minds think alike. And DCC is a great example of page count not showing complexity because you know each spell is a page or so in DCC, but if you're a fighter, you don't have to read all those spells, right? They're not the base rule. They're just specific to that spell. And then the other thing Colin does that I love is he mentions fourth point of contact. He might have got that from me, hard to say, but if you're not familiar with that term, fourth point of contact, of course, is your tuchus, and where that comes from is when you're doing a parachute landing fall. And I think I was described. I, I was in the 82nd Airborne when I was in the Army, and I think um, Colin picked up that fourth point of contact thing for me when I when I used it at some point. But so that that warms my heart. But anyway, on to the messages. Lastly, on page count, page count is a fine and dandy way to determine relative crunch. If you have more rules, then you're going to need more pages to print them on. You can have bigger fonts or smaller fonts. Uh, you can have more lore, more crunch. Vampire games, as I recall, were like 80-90% lore. But as a general rule, crunchy games, heavy games, are going to necessitate more text to handle all of those situations. But that's just me. right? Peace out, and uh, keep on recording. Well, Jace, Spike Pit, the terminally mistaken here. I know everybody likes a clarification, so I thought perhaps I was a bit too polite in just throwing out that question about page count without really um, nailing my colours to the mast. So I just want to make it clear and put in the caveat that, of course, you know, we all know that I'm always talking out of my fourth point of contact. And as a general rule, a big book is going to be full of rules. But we all know, we all know the problem with generalisations. 
they're basically you use a generalization when you don't actually know what you're talking about you just generalize i mean i'm really struggling to think of a few real life examples where a generalization might be a a troublesome thing i mean back in the 80s generalizations about people playing D&D now how accurate were they or do you maybe hang out with a few people who actually play the game and find out what they're really like generalizations I've got no time for them and regardless of whether I say in my opinion or in my humbler opinion or it's just me or whatever else um that wouldn't be genuine. I'm saying that I think counting pages lacks any sort of granularity. It's an oversimplification. It's unscientific. And I'm no scientist, but vast variables involved. Just look at spells. You could take two versions Dungeons and Dragons, maybe like where you move from basic to a comparison with even AD&D. There's, there's just more going on and it's, it's, it doesn't give you a true understanding of the complexity or, or there's, there's just no nuance. So... Our ring mail wearing buddy Taylor, I I am really keen to hear that whole message. Jason's clearly, clearly taken your words out of context, just to make Spike Pit look even more foolish than he already does. I mean, it wouldn't be hard, but talk about. Talk about a teaser, Jason. That's just not fair, man. Or I'll play the rest of the message on the 17th and then we can really see that page counting is an awesome thing to do. Putting any hint of sarcasm aside, and I don't want to go on, just an example where I think page count can really cause people to miss out is a game I know you like yourself, Jason, and that is DCC. You look at the book, you look at the amount of pages, and I really think that I'm not alone in being put off from what is, well, firstly, a cool game and a game that's really quite simple. But it's got loads of kind of um, weird, flavourful stuff that's not really rules. You know, the spells, the crit tables, all that sort of stuff... That that is why that is why I asked this this question in the beginning. So not handy dandy. Counting pages is not handy dandy. Join the spike pit campaign to stop page counting. It's it's cruel and inhuman. Hey, this is Taylor calling in talking about page counts and generalizations. So to clarify. Uh, Jason did not put me in a bad light. I don't think there was a lot of context missed. 
the message stood largely on its own. However, I did not provide a lot of context around the opinion. So, what I would like to try to do in a next message or two is to clarify where I'm coming from. The observation was made that the use of page count to determine the complexity of a game is an oversimplification. That is absolutely true. It is a broad generalization that lacks sufficient evidence and sufficient data points to make a proper hypothesis. However, I think the use case for a scientific analysis or an in-depth analysis is different than the use case for a generalization. And while generalizations can be bad in some contexts, generalizations become necessary in situations where alternative data points are unavailable. A real-world example from my life where generalization is a bad thing is buying a car. When my wife and I were shopping for a family vehicle, we evaluated several manufacturers and models. We had had a Honda before, so we might have been tempted to simply buy the bigger Honda. But because it's a big financial commitment, we needed to evaluate the features and track record of different uh, cars in order to make sure we were getting the one that was right for us. The same is true for home campaigns. I ran a DCC game for about a year prior to the birth of my boys, and it worked very well. It was simple enough to bring some people in from my workplace who had never played before, but complex enough to challenge some people who had been playing since homes. Conversely, the generalization becomes beneficial when the effort required to produce a proper hypothesis is greater than the benefit of that hypothesis's accuracy. An example of this was my introduction to wargaming. I had friends who played Warhammer, and I thought the battle reports were cool, I really liked the white dwarf and the miniatures, so they introduced me to the game using the digest size uh, rule books. That said, I would eventually go on to purchase the 400-page tome, but the, the moral of the story is that a generalization, an assumption, was used to get me into the hobby, at which point immersion in its complexity and a proper evaluation of whether I would belong in that hobby led to a 10 or 15 year positive experience. So is page count a valid data point when evaluating the accessibility of a game? Potentially. Um, is page count alone a good reason to play a game or not? Of course not. I did not mean to imply that it was. Um, that said, I am officially at work, so this will be my last message on the subject. Uh, I recognize that I fell into a pit what's got spikes in it uh, on that last voicemail, so hopefully this will clear up where I stand, and hopefully, again, having not yet had the opportunity to go back and listen to the context of the conversation leading up to it, uh, hopefully I haven't just dug myself in deeper. So, uh, game on guys and keep on, uh, keep on recording. Okay. Not much for me to add to that, but hopefully that sets things a little bit right. If I ever leave one of your messages out or, you know, do something that you think isn't right with your messages or something's missing, definitely reach out to me. You know, it's never my intention to take you out of context and I've 
you know, had people on the show to explain their contacts in the past where they think I've, or well, where, where I've misrepresented something and then I've gotten them on the show to clear that up and I'll do that with anybody. Um, so I appreciate those guys calling in. I, when I played Daniel's message, I said I, he had a couple more and I'm going to play those now. And he's weighing in on this question of what is a story game? It isn't uh, calling in about story games. <laughs> Um, I don't know I have that great of a definition. However, um, I listened to another podcast called uh, Fear of a Black Dragon, where there's two hosts there, and one of them is uh, comes from kind of the story game background, I guess, and the other one's a, a, an OSR guy. And they kind of talk about modules and adventures and play style, and they give advice. So that might be interesting uh, to, to listen to. I know I've enjoyed it um, immensely listening to it, and, and there's definitely things that they've suggested that are story game elements that I see a lot of people using non, what I would call non-story games. Things like, you know, asking the players to define, you know, parts of the story, you know, part of the story. But what's really interesting about that to me is that Spencer's call, oh, this is going to be two-parter, where Spencer mentions that the, per- I'm sorry, I didn't get the name, I'm driving here, um, talks about how in story games the GM has more control. You know, I wouldn't have thought that if you had asked me that before, but the more I think about it, that is kind of true because at least in the story games, or what I would call story games that I've seen, it's usually the DM that's giving the prompt, right? So if you're giving the prompt, like your character has a background with this person and they did something to you to make you hate them, what did they do, right? Now the, the, sure, the player gets to make up what that person did. But the DM's already set up, or GM, or referee, or whatever they are in the story, they've already set up the situation. So it feels like, from the player's point of view, you're making up the whole thing, but in fact, you're doing what the DM has told you to do. Not making it up from whole cloth. At least that's how I see it, or I have seen it. Really interesting perspective from Daniel. Thank you for that. Yeah, I used to listen to Fear of the Black Dragon, and <laughs> once I got into Anchor... Now I kind of have so many Anchor podcasts I listen to. There's very few other podcasts I listen to just because I, I say that. Fear of the Black Dragon might even be an Anchor podcast. I don't know. I, I classify it separately because it's one I listened to before I got into Anchor podcasts, if that makes sense. And, yeah, I'd have to go look. I don't know if they are or not. But, um, yeah, it, it is a very interesting podcast. I, I do remember enjoying it and listening to it in the past. And, and that's interesting, this idea that, you know, the where the GM's not a passive in the story telling games, but the GM is, you know, very much an active part of it, as are the players. So thank you so much for those calls, Daniel. I really appreciate it. This next set of calls are a <laughs> are a result of Joe Richter of the hindsightless Wheel of Woe fame and, and the the swath of destruction he can create. He um he he called. He said a number of controversial things recently. Well, some of them are, some of them aren't, right? So he came in a little bit hot on Randy over at Biggest Geekus called in, talking about how in math and, and and other other places you can use a word, the opposite word in the definition, you, you know, when you're defining something. But he understood that, you know, why I didn't want people just to say a rules heavy game isn't rules light. 
in the contest. You know, we wanted the full context. But so so Joe decided to say he thought, you know, Randy's thing only works in math, definition only works in math. And so Randy's calling to defend his point of view. And then we have Joe calling and calling me and co-host Eric Salsweedle out for our coverage of Joe in responding to his calls last episode. And then after that, one of those calls last episode, Joe said that Pathfinder is closer to what Gary Gygax would have gone to than the OSR. And so, and I'm paraphrasing that a little bit, go back to, you know, the last episode to listen to that. But anyhow, that sparked a response from Minion, also known as Rob, from the Wee Tim or Spooshy. So we're going to hear that call as well. So we have Randy from Biggest Geekus, then Joe himself, and then Minion. So I'm just going to play all this whole series of calls, and then I'll make any comments at the end. I really don't have anything to add to um, Randy's call or to Joe's call, although I'm glad that Joe picked up on Eric's nickname. And I will, I, I may have some comments after Minions, though. So let's hear the calls. This is the third time I've tried this. Um, I want to respond to Joe's idea of definition. I mean, I respect Joe, but I mean, as a definition, you absolutely can do all definition like we do in mathematics. You absolutely can. If low is the opposite of high, then you absolutely can define high and say low is not that. That is 100% fact. Now, within RPGs, I agree with him. We also have so much degrees of um, uh, delineation that it may not make a lot of sense. We may not want that sort of thing because we might want low, high, medium, somewhat crunchy, somewhat this, somewhat that. But um, so, I mean, we may do that, but personally, I think that's a, it's a problem when you say people define things the way they want to. We kind of get ourselves in a predicament we are with words and culture as we are today in, in the U.S. So, I do disagree with Joe, sort of, but I also agree with him. But uh, keep on keeping on. That's to Joe and to you as well. Take care. So, I think the bridge and I are in the same boat. We both come from that weird in-between generation i feel like uh you know so he got me and jason come on man give me some credit you know i know that 3.0 is watsy you know i know that god damn it uh but you know like i said if you if you look at second edition if you look at what was coming out later on in first edition if you look at the rules cyclopedia the game was pointed in a direction and that direction was towards like the bridge said, a more codified system also with power creep, also with feats and a robust skill system. And yeah, man, I, Pathfinder is the natural progression to where D and D was headed and where Gary was steering the ship. Peace out. Hey, Jason, this is many also known as Rob. I'm just responding to Joe's uh, call regarding, uh, regarding, was it third edition or Pathfinder, more accurate, Pathfinder being like AD&D and closer to Gary Gygax's uh, style of game. Now, I have some sincere doubts about this. Um, First, I'd like to say that I have nothing against Pathfinder or third edition. Uh, Currently, I'm playing in a short 3.5 game. And... um, I, I'm enjoying it. I, 
I don't know if it's the, the game master or the style of play that I enjoy, but I, I have no problems with it. And um, I like some of the things that the game does. Also, I can see that there's a lot of complexity there, which may be what Joe is referring to. Okay, so let's see what Gary Gygax actually said. Okay, in 2006, in N-World, he said, On the more recent versions of the game, I have played only 3rd edition. It is rules-intensive, removes the master from Dungeon Master, has no archetypes left, encourages the players to compete for dominance, devalued magic items, and substitutes statutes in the rules for innovation. Hmm, not too good. He also said this, I intended to revise original AD&D, but not into one that grafted skill-based play onto a class-based vehicle. I think that brings the worst of both system types. In the long term, I don't think I'd have made any changes in the AD&D game, only those necessary to allow the core rules to apply to more genres. And that was in 2003, again, in N-World. Um... Elsewhere on Dragon's Foot and so on, he's um, said that he didn't like uh, the OGL D20 system. So I think it's fair to say that Gygax may not have been envisioning um, a new edition in terms of something like Pathfinder. I wonder what he would have envisioned. I have some thoughts on this. Okay, so just my quick thoughts. Um, I think... I think Jay Webster said something to this effect as well, but I have a feeling that of the games, most modern games closest to D&D, yeah, uh, Joe is right that it's not really the um, the retro clones. I think what what it is, actually, is in fact Castles and Crusades. I think Castles and Crusades um, brings the best of the old school type games and applies a, a modern kind of engine of the style that... Uh, Wizards of the Coasts devised, but simplifies it so you don't have to get fussy with skills and so on. Um, extend, ext- instead, you can extrapolate things uh, based on very fairly simple principles. I think that's closer to what Gary Gai- Gygax would have gone for. Ultimately, though, does any of this really matter? I don't think it does. I think if you're playing the game the way you like to play the game, then you're having fun. In the way that I suppose Gary intended, Gary and Dave intended. So it doesn't really matter if you're playing the game that Gary envisioned, you know, might may have envisioned if he had kind of been able to get back in the reins, back in the seat of Dungeons and Dragons. It never happened. Um, however, you know, instead, I think, um, yeah, Pathfinder does it very well. I think a lot of people who enjoyed the um, the strategic elements and the, um, the more granular for, um, granular. Me- uh, functions, sorry, elements of combat uh, of AD&D, they, they got that from Pathfinder. So and clearly a lot of people have stuck with Pathfinder. But I also think that um, the retro clones are great. Um, I think the Stores and Wizardry is a, is a beautiful edition of D&D. Uh, it's one of my favourites by, by far. So I want to end this by saying that um, uh, peace to Joe. Uh, certainly not interested in starting any edition wars. Um, what Gary Gygax thinks really is immaterial, isn't it? Um, we're all, even back in the day, back in the 70s, people were diverging from the original uh, original white box and 
you know, making the game their own. So and I think that's what we have to do. Um, and the place where we start that uh, search doesn't really matter as long as we're all happy. So, you know, if you start that from fifth edition, cool. Um, start that from um, the, you know, BX, uh, D&D uh, and bolt things onto that. Cool. You know, you, you can start off with something and take it away. Uh, just as Spike Pit does. So anyway, that's just my thoughts on it. Sorry for taking so much time though. All right. Cheers guys. Bye-bye. And there we go. So if anybody else has any thoughts on any of the subject matter we talked about in these calls, feel free to call in. Again, you can leave a message on Anchor. You can send an email to Nerds RPG Fridaycast, attach an audio file to that. You could just send me an email or reach out to me on Discord and I'll read your text message. Whatever. There's a bunch of ways to get a hold of me. But I do want to thank all my callers very much because they make the show what it is. I want to thank you, the listener, because otherwise we'd put all this work in and then nobody'd hear it. I want to thank Ray Otis for the art and TJ Drennan for the music. Take care, everybody, and I'll talk to you again soon. Or a joke about your spouse But the operator's screaming It's coming from inside the house What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, the audience is pretty sure He took a pretty head And the only question left is If I fail to shoot him dead Bring on the gold Bring on the gold I want some more Bring on the gold is a dustbin and your moil's by the tipper And I'm assuming that your partner back there in the wood chipper Don't look away Don't look away Don't look away Don't look away Well the zombies are rising and the world is gone to hell We're living for the dying and we're dying for the train wreck